Turn to Matthew chapter five, please. Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at verses 38 through 42 this morning. And while you're turning there, if you know, I want your eyes on this passage along with me. I want you to see that I'm not making this stuff up. So I want you to see with your own eyes. We'll also throw it up on the screen for you. But while you're turning there, let me, uh, let me pray. Father, I ask again for your presence, your personality, your opinions, your, um, your interpretation to be strongly felt and adhered to in our church and in our lives and in our minds. I pray the prayer of Jesus who said, Let, um, may your kingdom come and your will be done in my mind and in my heart, in my soul, in my being, in my body, in my world, in my town, in my family, um, as it is in heaven. But Jesus, I, we pray, start with us. Start with, start with me. We're here listening to your words with open hearts and open hands, ready to toss out the things in our lives that don't match up and to adopt a new way, your way. We are your followers, your apprentices, your disciples. Teach us, Spirit. Teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read this to you. This is starting uh, chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if, any, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, I'll go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, last Wednesday, Valentine's Day or Ash Wednesday, starting Lent, during a parade in Kansas City celebrating the victory, the Super Bowl victory of the Kansas City Chiefs. Good on you if you're a Chiefs fan. Um, gunfire rang out outside of Union Station, wounding 23 people half of whom were under the age of 16. One was an eight-year-old little boy. And killing um, a local DJ and a mother of two. Come to find out, this was not an act of terrorism. It wasn't even an act of homegrown domestic violence. Rather, it was, quote, a dispute between several teenagers that ended in gun violence, the police reported. An argument. Um, on December 18th, this is a tough one. On December 18th, a married couple in the Los Angeles area was driving on an LA freeway with their four-year-old little boy in the back. They had made some kind of a, a, a move with their car that offended another car. That other car um, proceeded to follow them through several Los Angeles streets and finally pulled up next to them and unloaded, unleashed a barrage of gunfire into the car killing the four-year-old little boy in the back seat. When the assailants were arrested, they had no idea that a four-year-old was in the back seat, and, of, and they felt horrible. Enter Jesus of Nazareth into a world rife with violence, revenge, and retribution. This Sage rabbi who beckons the world, come follow me. Take my way, my yoke upon you. So the question is, how are we as followers of Jesus supposed to respond to the evil in our world? How do, what is the response of a person like Jesus when they are deeply wronged or even abused or taken advantage of or put down or insulted or whatever the case might be, how does a follower of Jesus respond? This is extremely pertinent for us in our world. And I think that we'll see that the answer is astounding, that the answer of Jesus is brilliant, it's astounding, it's world-altering, really. No one was saying this type of thing before Jesus and no one has especially lived it like Jesus and no one has said anything really, this world-altering sense 
It's astounding, and yet it's also crushing. (laughs) When we turn what Jesus says kind of over on the palate of our soul, on the one hand, we, we taste something sweet and powerful and beautiful that literally has the power to change the course of human history forever, really. And yet, you'll also taste the gristle of the way of Jesus that is so, it seems so impractical and so impossible that it's hard to swallow that thing down. On the one hand, this is incredibly relatable because we live in a world of offense. And Jesus knows this. We live in a world where we offend each other. In fact, the four, these four hypothetical situations that Jesus offers in this passage are taken right out of everyday life. His audience would have, would have been very familiar with the kinds of scenarios that Jesus is describing here. They would have understood it acutely. Imagine this with me. Let me just take scenario number one. Imagine in your mind, you're a poor farmer. You're barely making it. You're, you're, making, you're making it, but you're not making it because of the Roman government. They're taxing, some historians say, 70, 80, even 90% of your income going to the Roman government. The day comes for you to pay your taxes, and you, so you go with everyone from your village to go pay your taxes, and you wait in line at the taxpayer's booth. And you walk up to the Jewish tax collector that's working for the Roman government and you maybe hushly explain to him, I, I, don't, I don't have the money, I can't pay and keep my farm working at the same time. And to your astonishment, he does the numbers and he stands up in front of them all and he goes, whack, across your face in front of all your friends, in front of everybody. And there's a, there's a Roman guard there ready to enforce much worse if you, if you do something else. The law is completely on this person's side to do this. And you're a follower of Jesus. What do you do? Scenario number two. You're living in a land where the emperor ruthlessly taxes the wealthy to, to fund Rome's wars. Okay? And as a result, the rich, to secure their wealth against this, they sought to invest in like, um, like non-solid investments, especially like real estate okay, and land. The problem is, is that back then, real estate was not sold on the open market like it is today. It was ancestrally owned and it was passed down from generation to generation, making it extremely difficult to buy. So a system was formed to leverage exorbitant interest rates to basically push landowners land into further poverty. And if you couldn't pay, they would take you to court and they would absolutely sue, literally, the shirt off your back. That is the situation that Jesus is describing here. That's what he's painting. You're a landowner, you're bogged down by debt, you can't pay, so you're taken to court and you're squeezed of your possessions like a sponge, uh, uh, you know, putting you further and further into poverty. And there's nothing you can do. What do you do? As a follower, you've been hearing this rabbi named Jesus and you've decided to follow him. What do you do? Let me give you the thir- a third scenario. You, you, you're having a picnic Here's a good one. You're having a picnic on Sabbath, as Jewish people would do, by the Sea of Galilee. You got your family with you. You're enjoying God's beauty in a day of rest. Your kids are playing in the field. You and your wife are on the blanket. And up walks a regiment of Roman soldiers, tired and switching their shift from a day of patrolling the Sea of Galilee. They're exhausted, they're sweaty, they're tired, and a Roman soldier comes up to you, pulls out a sword and points, throws his 65 to 85 pound pack at your seat and says, you, carry this over that hill for me. What do you do? As a follower of Jesus, what do you do? The point is, being taken advantage of and perhaps taking advantage of others is part of the broken human condition that Jesus is here to address. He's here to go right to the heart of what's happening here. We live in a world of boundary violations at best and outright abuse at worst. 
And he, Jesus is here to teach his followers how do we interact with a world like this. So in that way, Jesus is dealing with very practical solutions here today. And yet, on the other hand, what Jesus seems to be saying feels utterly impractical in the sense that Jesus suggests a solution that's extremely counterintuitive to us. What do we make of this? Well, I want to get into this by noticing at least, let's say, four things. How does evil work? Jesus gives, gives us a clue here how the Bible and how he thinks about human evil and evil in general in the world. Secondly, what do we as followers of Jesus do about it? Thirdly, does it actually really work? Does what Jesus say here, does it actually have a shot at working? Finally, how far does this reach? How far do we go with this type of a thing? Let's answer some practical questions at the end. Number one, how does evil work in the world according to Jesus and according to the Bible? Um, notice in verse 39, Jesus says not to resist the, quote, the evil one. And the question that we need to ask to get us going is, what or who is he referring to when he says the evil one? The Greek for evil one is, is topaneros, which is actually created quite a debate on how to interpret this word. The question that scholars are asking about topaneros is who exactly is the evil one? Is he talking about people, human evil, or is he referring to the evil one par excellence, the devil? You know, is that what he's referring to? And the immediate context certainly suggests that Jesus is talking about human evil, given that all four scenarios that Jesus gives are dealing with evil people either slapping or stealing, suing, exploiting, those types of things. It seems pretty straightforward in that regard. But there's actually a very compelling argument for hearing Jesus as referring to the evil one. In other words, this spiritual yet personal supernatural force in rebellion to Yahweh at work in the world especially since the other times Jesus uses this phrase on the Sermon on the Mount, seem to be very obviously talking about the devil or the evil one. Uh, just a few verses earlier, uh, Nathan covered this last week. Um, in verse 37, Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from, here's our word, paneros, evil. Anything out of the truth actually has got its roots in some kind of, some form of evil. Seems pretty straightforward there. The other time is in chapter 6 when Jesus is talking, uh, telling us how we should pray, how disciples pray. And you know the, the famous line, deliver us from, there it is, topaneros, the evil, or some translations say the evil one. So which one is it? Well, when you, when you take these concepts out of kind of the systematic realm and put them in the story of the Bible, you quickly begin to see how these two ideas, humanity and he, evil, start to, start to bleed together a little bit. If, for example, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there with me if you want. It's a great starting place. Um, one of my professors in school taught us that everything in the Bible is found in the first three chapters of Genesis just in seed form. And I think that's very true. Let me show you. Um, you know this story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, man, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And he said, 
Whoa, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you, that you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God went to the woman and said, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God went to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and on the dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then to the woman, he goes back to her. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to that of your husband, but he will rule over you. And then he goes to the man, to Adam. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, um, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Uh, you shall you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice the order here. Who shows up first in the chapter? The serpent. He goes to Eve. Eve gives the fruit to Adam. God comes. He goes to Adam. She. Adam says it's this woman. God goes to the woman. The woman says, it's the servant or serpent. So God goes to the serpent. And he starts with the serpent, and then he moves back to the woman, and then he moves back to the man. There's this progression and this order that goes on here. And the point is, is that there is clearly a link, or even most scholars think an alliance between human social sin. You will desire him, but he will rule over you. However you want to interpret that on the egalitarian side or the complementarian side, it doesn't matter. There's some kind of an issue going on here that's linked in with the devil. There's an alliance, a social breakdown, a relational breakdown that is every but entwined and tangled in with some kind of evil force that's bent against Yahweh. And this link can be traced throughout the entire Bible. Genesis chapter six. Let me read this one to you. Here's a creepy, evil, kinky kind of episode. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, here's this incredible phrase, the sons of God. That is some kind of fallen spiritual beings in rebellion to Yahweh. These sons of God saw the daughters of man, that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives and they, as any that they chose. Now look at God's response to this. What happens? Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. So there's this human element. For he is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. That does not mean he will live 120 years. It means Noah's ark, or the flood, will come in 120 years from this time. It's a prophetic description. The Nephilim, this is verse 4, were on the earth in those days. Um, and also afterwards, when the sons of, there's that phrase again, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. These are unholy kind of offspring according to this alliance with, with humans and evil. So what's the result? Look at verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Think of that. That, that means that when your mind goes to a resting position, a neutral position, it goes towards only evil continually, only perversion continually. There is a relationship here between evil and mankind that only spreads or even breeds, if you would, um, more evil to the rest of the world. Getting, I mean, this should be a Halloween sermon. This is creepy. Then we get to the account of the Tower of Babel. This is super interesting. The account of the Tower of Babel where God executes judgment on mankind, 
by scattering them throughout all the earth and confusing their languages. But listen to Moses, how Moses recounts this looking back. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is talking back about the Tower of Babel situation. And here's what he says. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind referring to the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people, here it is, according to the number of these sons of God, that's Ben Elohim, sons of God, these fallen, so not only did he scatter humans over the, over the planet in different territories, he scattered these rebellious sons of God, Elohim, against himself, people, or, you know, things as well. And there's some kind of link between the two, especially when we get to Egypt, when, the, when um, Yahweh is freeing his people from the land of Egypt. Look at what he says here, and this is Exodus 12, 12. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. He's talking about Passover. And I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. Here we go. Both man, that's human, and beast, and on all the, quote, gods of Egypt, Elohim of Egypt. There's this cosmic judgment that's mirrored with this human judgment that's going on, and we see this traced throughout all of Scripture. The point is, as you can see, throughout the Bible, there seems to be compelling evidence that human sin and supernatural evil are linked or in some kind of coalition. In other words, in the garden, mankind not only split off from Yahweh, they did do that, but not only did they split off from Yahweh, they seemed to make some kind of an alliance or a coalition with the forces of evil, this rebellious, spiritual, supernatural, personal force that is against Yahweh, that is out to, un every, out to undo every good, true, and beautiful thing that Yahweh has done in the creation process. Um, one scholar puts it this way, and I think it's good. It's like a guitar and a guitar player. The two cannot make music without each other. That piano cannot make music without me. I can't make music without that piano, see? There's a symbiotic, to speak in the words of biology, there's a symbiotic relationship between human beings and with evil. So when Jesus tells his followers here not to resist, more on that phrase in a, in a minute, not to resist the evil one, I suspect that he's speaking of both the offending person in any given instance and a supernatural force that's behind it, that's tinkering with it, that's playing the strings of our fallen human condition, so to speak. We have anger, we have selfishness, and something is there to, to make a chord out of that, to make a song out of that, to make an album out of that, to destroy a civilization and a society out of that especially at play in the dynamics between human relationships. Now, okay, this has some immediate, immediate points for what, for what we're talking about here. Number one, the, quote, evil ones we encounter, you and I encounter on a daily basis and are, um, are first influenced to some degree by the evil one, however you want to interpret that. Okay, And when you act selfishly against a fellow human being, there is always some level of influence from something other than yourself there. I mean, you guys, think about what's going on, what's really going on in your marriage. Think about what's really going on in the dynamics of your kids or at work or with any relationship. There is both human selfishness and human manipulation and greed and lust and all of those things, but what's playing those things to its advantage is Hasatan, Satan, or the devil, Diablo, this, this personification of evil. I don't like to call him a him. I think it gives, him too much, gives it too much dignity. This evil spiritual force that's against Yahweh and against you, tearing you and your relationships apart, okay? According to the Bible, on one, ex on one extreme of this spectrum is what we call possession, where evil actually inhabits the mind and the body and has been given complete control of a person, okay? Um, 
And this is something that scripture says cannot happen to a follower of Jesus because we have the spirit of God residing in us. However, though, on the other end of this spectrum, everyone who acts sinfully, big or small, is indeed in some way being influenced to some degree by demonic supernatural evil, whether you know it or not and whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Remember Nathan's passage last week. He's talking to disciples. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything other than this comes from evil. He's not saying you're possessed, but he's saying there's an evil presence there. Remember when he, he uh, turns around and faces Peter. One second, Peter is like, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. The next second, Peter is like, Jesus, you're not gonna do that. And remember, Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, because you are not interested in the things of God, but only the things of man. What, is, what was Jesus saying? Peter, you're being selfish. And that selfishness is an inroad to something evil in your life. And it's penetrating into my group. I know what you're trying to do here. Satan, get out. Jesus didn't see these crisp buckets or crisp lines between a human being naughty and, and, some, and supernatural evil being really bad over here. He always sniffed or suspected something behind, in concert with human selfishness and human sin. Secondly, knowing this should give us empathy for the people that we're encountering. You know that. We can say, okay, or we could say like Jesus on the cross, they know not what they do. They know not what they do fully. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes influencing them. This can really help us devilify somebody that's coming after us, that's insulting us, that's slapping us. If we understand this, okay, look, this is, not, this is you, but it's not only you. And it can make you think of yourself. When you feel that rage and you get back and you manipulate, you can go, on the one hand, okay, I need to repent, but what am I doing when I'm repenting? Spiritual warfare. I am shoring up a, 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 um, a chink in my armor when I repent and when I confess. I am, I am uh, you know, we, you know, any homeowner knows when you have mice coming in, you gotta figure out where they're getting in and you seal that thing off. That's repentance and confession. Okay, you see, you see where I'm going with that? Okay. They are, we are, to some unknown extent, under influence in certain moments and in certain times. Um, here's, to, here's the apostle Paul for the win. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, what Jesus is about to tell us, listen, is not just societal, is not just relational, but what Jesus is telling us here actually has spiritual power to do war against spiritual forces. Even though what he says is very practical and very relational, very one-on-one, -on -one. in fact, that's the whole language of this, it's, it's individual to individual, and yet, in Jesus' mind, you are doing battle against evil dynamics going on in your relationships and in the world around you. So what do we do as followers of Jesus? Well, let's look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 38 again. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a, to er, and a tooth for a tooth. As previously discussed, the phrase, you have heard that it was said, was a verbal formula that rabbis would use before they would quote from the Hebrew Bible or from the Old Testament. And this quote is not just quoted once in the, in the Torah, it's quoted no less than three times. It's quoted Exodus, uh, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20, and Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 21. And this is how the Torah instructed people to deal with the wrongs done against them. Okay, it dates back to at least the 18th century BC and came to be known as the law or the tooth, uh, or the law of the tooth, or, or um, uh, let's see, what's the Latin phrase? Uh, Lex Talionis, I think is what it is. Just, uh, an, you know, and it's completely built on this idea of equal retribution. That's the idea. In other words, um, justice was based on exact measures. You knock out my tooth, I knock out your tooth. And then it's done. There's no more retribution, it's it. We're even, it's good. You know, kids still play that. 
<laughs> you know, they, I, I watched a kid last week accidentally, you know, turn around and slap a kid. And the kid goes, oh, he goes, I'm so sorry. Here, do it to me. Do it to me. And the kid was like, no, it's weird. You know, but that's the idea. It's like, okay, if, if you hit me back, we'll be even and I can feel better. Notice the law says an eye for an eye, not a broken face for an eye. Or a stoved-in skull for a tooth. That's not what it says. It's, it's based on equality. Now, this was a huge, this was light years advanced for its time. And this was an improvement to human ethics and society at large because it checked wild revenge. It stopped wild revenge and taught justice. It was civilized, very advanced for its time, and very just. But the problem is, as we all know, when someone hits you in the face... Do you want to just hit them in the face back? You guys are smiling at me. What's going on in your mind right now? No. You want to do more, maybe a little bit more than that or put just a tiny bit more stank on it, right? When somebody, here's what I, Nicole knows this, what I'm famous for, when someone uh, tailgates me and gets too close, you know what I like to do? I like to go really slow really slow and Nicole's always like you're being a jerk I'm like I know but it feels so good <laughs> right um, we like to go above and beyond and we we have grown into a culture that likes to think that the way to fix violence is with more violence and it keeps it all spinning look what Jesus enter Jesus of Nazareth Jesus comes in verse 39 and he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, if we're honest, and I hope this is a place where we can be honest with one another, this bristles against us. This is very difficult, especially in a time and place like ours. Is Jesus really saying to let the enemy, human or otherwise, to just run roughshod over us? If that is the case, then this is a very, very difficult pill to swallow. Maybe even, some, at best, something we nod at but don't have any intentions of actually practicing. Or something that we just outright say, that's just not for me, I just can't do it. I'll never reach. You know, this is like, I always liken the Sermon on the Mount to Michael Jordan. Like, I, I like to play basketball, but any of you watch Michael Jordan, you just think to yourself, I could practice and practice and practice and improve and improve and improve, and I will never, ever get to the level that he's at out of the womb. You know? It just seems like next level. Or a musician. I, sometimes I don't call myself a musician anymore. When I see a real musician, I go, oh, gosh, I should just sell all my stuff. You're just next level right? The Sermon on the Mount makes me feel like that at times. When Jesus says stuff like this, it's just like, gosh, I, there's just no way I'm not going to be able to not slow down when that guy's on my back. When he's trying to park his car in my trunk, it just feels so good to slam that brake a little bit, right? But listen, the two, the two ways, before, well, before we dive into this, remember that Jesus is not so much laying down rules and laws so much as he's saying that he's turning his followers into a certain kind of people that react against evil in certain kinds of ways. And however those reactions flesh out, they will be marked by this spirit or characteristic of not resisting. The two words to pay attention for are me and testhene. Me and testhene in the Greek. And these words were first translated, do not resist, by the, by the lawyers commissioned by King James I when he wrote the King James Bible, when he commissioned it to be um, written or translated in 1603. It was, it was published in 1611. And most scholars, frankly, think that he translated it this way, do not resist the evil one, to stop people from resisting his rule. Okay? Okay. Um, but these two words are actually quite tricky to translate. Translate The word may is not in the Greek. Not. Or, or you could even, it's very strong in the grammar. It could be ever. Do not ever. It's very, very strong language that Jesus is using here. And the word intestine means to set against, uh, to set yourself against. 
to come against. Because, because of this, there are several other translations that might be helpful. This is the New English Bible. It says, do, it translates it this way. Do not set yourself against the evil one. Here is the, uh, today's English version, the TEV. Do not take revenge on the evil one. Um, here's my favorite. Uh, this is Dale Bruner's interpretation. He says, do not ever try to get evil or even with the evil one. I like that one the best. Do not ever try to get even with the evil one. So there is clearly, here's what we need to know first. There is clearly a wholesale rejection of a character trait of defensiveness in the follower of Jesus. And we need to square with that. The way of Jesus, this is just as blunt as this passage is. The way of Jesus is never one of defensiveness. Never. It's not the way of Jesus. And because of that, another translation that may be even better is do not engage evil at all in its own way. I love that one. Do not engage evil at all in its own way. Now this, if you think about these translations, this is much different than being a, being do a, a doormat or a coward or putting your head in the sand or pacifism or whatever that might be. But still, it's every bit as challenging. It's still just as challenging. Jesus is not, or Jesus is saying not to, not to confront evil or to be a coward. He's also, neither is he saying to fight violence with violence. He's not saying either. He's not saying fight and he's not saying flight. He's offering a third way, a creative and surprising way that his followers will confront evil. He's saying to not confront evil from a heart of evil. I guess you could put it that way. Don't do it out of revenge. Don't fight violence with violence. And here it's in the Greek, ever, ever. Fighting violence with violence is not the way of Jesus. And we need to square with it, not even in self-defense. I know that's tough, but it's true. Not even in self-defense. Yeah. Evil begets evil. That's right. And we see that in our culture. It just keeps it all spinning. There, there may be rare exceptions, like defending someone else, right? It doesn't say turn another person's cheek for them, <laughs> right? There may be rare exceptions there. But violence is not the normal MO of a follower of Jesus. It's just not and throughout the life of Jesus, we see this. But neither is cowardice. This is neither fight or flight. This is presenting a third way. So on the one hand, Jesus is not saying to sit idly by when evil's confronting you. We can reject that interpretation. He's not saying that. But he's also not saying to, okay, I'll just, he's also not saying to storm the Capitol either. I have to say it. When we see people with a Christian flag storming a building, breaking in and causing violence or running roughshod over Capitol Police, we can just say that beloved brother or sister is uninformed on the way of Jesus in this regard. I love them, God bless them, but I can say, based on the teachings of Jesus, I'm rejecting that way. I hope we can still be friends, but I have to be faithful to the text. Instead, he says to confront evil creatively and surprisingly. I love the balance of Jesus. It's so brilliant. Let's briefly go through these, uh, these examples and let me, let me show you this, how incredible this is. Let's look at the slap. The slap. That's the, verse, the end of verse 39. In verse 39, Jesus presents a very, like we said earlier, a very common scenario where if someone slaps you on the right cheek, now think about that. If someone's going to slap you on the right cheek and they're right-handed, they've got to backhand you. Okay? This was something that was only done from superiors to inferiors. So unfortunately, in that culture, a husband to a wife 
or parents to a child or masters to slaves, Roman oppressors to those that are being oppressed. That, that was the only, it was the greatest insult on your dignity and on your humanity in that culture. That you could, It wasn't necessarily considered physical violence, though it obviously is. It was more in, insulting to your person. It was putting you in your place. It was embarrassing you. It was saying, you're inferior to me. Now, on the one hand, the disciple does not run. Notice Jesus does not say, if this happens to you, turn and just run. Just get out of there. Nor does he say, fall down and cover up and cower. He doesn't say that either. Instead, he offers something creative. He says, turn the other also. In the Greek, it's, the word turn simply means to turn and face that person as an equal. You're taking your dignity back. You face that person as an equal. And with this spirit, you basically say, I can see you're having a tough day. Do you want to get anything else out to? I'm offering this one. Now, what is that? Surprising, isn't it? That is very surprising. And what does this do? Well, you're taking your dignity back because you're facing the person as an equal and it's disarming the person because you're, cho- you're choosing on your own free will. You're taking the initiative back. Not to get even with them, but to, fa- to let them in front of everybody show how, how bad they really are. And they might. Notice Jesus here does not make any predictions that this will actually solve anything. But what it does is it exposes them for the, e- for the evil that they've got going on. You're not fighting back, but you're holding your dignity at the same time. It's surprising and yet creative. Jesus, by the way, did this before he died when he said, no one takes, no one takes their li- my life from me. I give it up freely. He's saying there, he's saying, no, this is a gift. I'm, no one takes it from me. Look at the coat. Verse 40, this is, this is uh, very surprising. Um, This is a courtroom scene in verse 40 where you as a follower of Jesus are being sued unjustly for the shirt off your back. People in those days had two two layers of clothing only, okay? They had their inner garment, it was kind of like long underwear, went right against your skin. And then you had your cloak, your your, kind of that, think of Middle Middle Eastern, like a long robe. And there was actually laws in both um, the Roman world and the Jewish world that you could not take their coat until uh, you had to give it back at sundown because most people, especially poor people, would use it as a blanket. It was like the only blanket they had to keep warm at night. In Jesus' scenario, the disciple is being sued for their outer garment and Jesus is saying, give them their inner garment also. What would that have meant? In the court, in front of everybody, what's he saying? Strip down, butt naked, and, give, and hand them your underwear too. Now what is that? Surprising. Surprising. Would you say gross? Is that what you said? I don't want to ask who you're imagining. It's obviously not me. Glorious. You're welcome. Um, it was surprising. What does it do? Well imagine how this exposes this creditor There you are, stark naked. There's this creditor beat red and embarrassed in front of everybody. Your outer garment in one hand, your underwear in the other. You've basically completely turned the tables here. You had no hope of winning the trial. The law is completely on that person's side. You have no hope of winning the trial. But you have refused to give up your power. And at the same time, you've, you've... You've registered basically a stunning protest against a system that spawns such debt. You're basically saying, you're, gonna, you're driving me more and more into debt, and now you're going to take it. You're gonna take, here, I'll give you everything except my body. You're going to take that next to? That person cannot pretend to be good or compassionate or loving or empathetic at that point. You have, in effect, said, you want my robe, take everything, and then you're going to have to take my body next. It also, though, offers the creditor a chance to see what his practice or her practices are doing. That I am impoverishing a society 
with my practices. It gives them the opportunity, and again, Jesus doesn't say they will, but it gives them the opportunity to repent, to rethink, to go, okay, this is not right. I don't wanna live this way. I'm literally robbing this poor, my fellow countrymen of, of their dignity and their land and their, their good name, and I'm impoverishing them so I can get out of these taxes. In doing this, the poor disciple has displayed an exploitive law for what it is. Now, Jesus, now again, I want to, <laughs> Jesus, these are not commands. So I'm not, I don't want to hear if you're in court that you, you know, you strip down. That's not what he's, you know, my pastor taught me. No, that's not, let me just, I have to say this to the kids during the week. This is not what I'm saying to tell your parents. I'm just saying, you know. So, yeah, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, get creative. A, a, a disciple responds lovingly, but also creatively and surprisingly. Let's look at the mile in verse 41. Yeah, go for it. Go! Thank you. I love you. I'll pay you what I said later. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Maybe in the mail. Anyway, um, okay, let's go with the mile. This was another familiar scene in Jesus' day. A Roman occupier um, could legally demand a Jew to carry his pack for a mile, but not beyond that. Actually, under Pontius Pilate in his earlier reign, Caesar came to Pontius Pilate and said, or made a decree, you cannot make them go past a mile because he was trying to stop from unrest in the, in the region. The, the Jews were so mad about this and it was being abused so much. They're just carrying Roman soldiers' packs around all day that it was starting to cause rebellion and unrest. So finally Caesar stepped in to Pontius Pilate and said, enough, just one mile. So you can you know, kind of quell the, the intensity a little bit. Can you imagine the rage and resentment? Can you imagine that? I mean, just access, Jesus is trying to access your imagination right now. Imagine, let me just, let me just get a little close to home. Imagine Russia invades America and they occupy our territory and they make you carry their stuff. How would you feel? Really mad. I mean, I'll speak for myself. Really, 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 really mad. But you have no option. They, the, the law is completely on their side. They've got military force. There was a faction of Jews known as zealots in Jesus' day, or they're actually, the Hebrew was, uh, was dagger men who held a dagger under their cloak, and they would, in fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, and they would, they would kind of, they'd be in a crowd with a Roman soldier, and they would, they would come up behind them and just slit their throat and just melt back into the crowd. So Jesus is clear, being very clear, I'm not with you guys, not with the zealots, but that's how mad people were at this, okay? Kind of this guerrilla warfare terrorism going on. The Jew could, could either run and be killed, fight back or be killed, or do what this Roman soldier was saying to do, but just hop in mad, resentful, and all the rest. Jesus says, as my disciples with concern for the Roman guard in your heart, you, you, you say to this man, you look tired and exhausted. Would it be okay if I carried it the rest of the way for you? Can I go another mile with you? What is this? Shocking and surprising. What would that do? Well, by this creative action, the oppressed disciple has, again, recovered the initiative. They've asserted their human dignity in a situation that can't, for that at least time, be changed. And the, basically, the rules are Caesar's. You can't change that. But how they're done are God's. And you do have power over that. Caesar has no power over how you respond. Imagine the soldier's surprise when a disciple of Jesus, a Jewish person that they know hates when they, when they do this, turns and says, let me carry that 65 to 85 pound pack for you another mile. You've had a long night. Let me get this for you. What would he think? Think of the thoughts in the Roman soldier's mind. He would think, okay, why is he doing this? What's this guy up to? What's he up to right now? 
Usually I have to force these people to do this, but this guy's doing it cheerfully and actually won't stop. What's going on right now? Is this a provocation? Is he, is he insulting my strength? A Roman soldier could think. Is he, is he actually being kind? Oh, is he trying to get me in trouble by breaking the law? Is he gonna file a complaint later and get me in the end? No matter what he's thinking, do you see how it throws him off balance? The Roman soldier is completely off balance by this, by, this, by this move. Evil is disrupted. And Jesus says this is spiritual warfare. This is how Christians fight evil. From a situation of oppression and abuse, the disciple has once more seized the initiative. He's taken back the power of choice. And the soldier is thrown off balance, being deprived of the predictability of the typical response. And finally, briefly, the borrower in verse 42. Remember, Jesus is talking to predominantly poor, impoverished people in this, in this address on the mount. Therefore, borrowing and begging were ways of manipulation and survival of the fittest. We, we saw this happening. We were, Nicole and I were in um, Lahaina when it burnt down. And we stayed there that, for that whole week in the middle of that. And we saw a community turn like they went, they went full on Lord of the Flies. <laughs> it was just, it was crazy. They went full on Animal Farm. It was like looting and siphoning gas out of fellow Hawaiians. And it wasn't that they were being, I mean, it was evil, but it was that they, were, they felt desperate. They felt like they, this is survival of the fittest. It became this kind of manipulative, really crazy environment there. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he says, be creative by radically giving. Radically giving. Now, these words of Jesus are not just creative and surprising, but truly have the power to change the world. Here's what... I did a little research here, and I think this will surprise you, because it's not, you don't really read about this stuff in the news. We live in a culture that believes in the myth of progressive violence. It's really hard for us not to feel justified, which means we believe the more that more violence is the answer. Um, okay, this is from our movies that we watch, from the media that we consume, from the video games that we play, from... from all around, there's this idea of revenge and that might makes right. From the, from the John Wayne Westerns, the good guy in an old Western is not someone with moral character necessarily. It's someone who's faster or stronger. That's really what it is. And the same is true. Okay, recently I got about a quarter of the way through John Wick. Has anybody seen that? And I would recommend that you won't, don't. But basically the premise is, the premise is, is that John Wick is this trained assassin and he's got this cute little puppy. And then somebody, uh, bad guys break into his home and they kill the little puppy. And that just makes John Wick lose his marbles and proceeds to kill 27,000 people. That's basically what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, and he took his car. Yes. And it's just, his dead wife gave him the puppy. So, oh, never mind. That makes it better. Okay, thank you for, thanks for balancing me out there. Yes, okay. So, okay, John was a great show. Go on. No, you know, he just goes nuts. He just goes nuts. And uh, I mean, it's just like, I just feel like they should put a counter. It's just like body count. The whole, it's like they came up with the most flimsy plot possible to incubate basically a, a show about justified vengeance and murder. And we eat this stuff up. We have, I mean, apparently, because there's like, what is there, like 12 John Wicks now? Four John Wicks now. He just, he, like, he didn't get it done in the first one. And he's just making his way through countries, just killing fools, apparently. It's different, yeah, different stuff. Different, like, someone, yeah, right. His aunt was killed in the next one. I don't know. But that's the stuff that our, our culture eats this kind of thing up. Think of a world, think of a world that followed the way of Jesus. Can you even imagine it? Can you imagine a world? Think of his first little command to us about anger. Can you think of a world of people who are patient and not angry? Can you think of that? That's hard in an election cycle to even imagine it. This next one was lust. Can you think of a world where we were marked by purity instead of exploitation. Can you think of a world without pornography? 
Women, could you think of a world where you actually felt safe? You didn't have to question if a person's eyes were valuing your body or not. (laughs) Think of a world where you could depend on people's word. When they said yes, you know they would be there. Think of the the societal um, strength that we would have in a world like that. Think of a world where there was not retribution, but this predominant way of Jesus' love. And here are some facts that you may not know, because this has actually been tried. This is not theory. Been tried a lot. In 1986, the Philippines um, had a nonviolent revolution led by Corazon Aquino with, cru- with major support from churches from Christians, and they swept the dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, out of office and only lost 120, 121 lives doing it. This was so effective because the churches trained the people in this revolution in nonviolent responses. In Poland, uh, nonviolence overthrew communism an entire secret culture based on literature and spirituality was able to release Poland from communism nonviolently. In fact, here's what might interest you. Nonviolent creative protests and strikes have overthrown at least seven Latin American dictators. You've got Chile in 1931, Cuba in 1933, Guatemala in 1944, Haiti in 1946, Panama in 1951, Haiti again in 1956, and Colombia in 1957. In in fact, in, in the year 1989 to 1990 alone, 14 nations underwent nonviolent revolutions, all of them successful except for China, and all of them nonviolent except for Romania. That's an amazing success rate. These revolutions involved This isn't small. We just don't hear about it for some reason. They involved 1.7 billion people. In fact, if you were to total all the nonviolent movements in the 20th century, the figure comes to 3.4 billion people. Our county, Seattle, is in King County, named after Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., whose movement helped to end the oppression of black people in America. While attending um, theological seminary, you know what gripped him? Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, gripped him and became the foundational philosophy for his entire movement. We forget that Martin Luther King was a pastor and a preacher, and his I Have a Dream speech was a sermon Mohandas Gandhi, though he was never, never became a follower of Jesus, unfortunately, he was, when he was in South Africa as a lawyer, he was struck by the words of Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. And he said, quote, I consider these words the greatest words ever spoken by a human to talk about nonviolent change in the world. And ultimately, you guys, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus himself is the greatest, most cosmic, mountain-shattering example of a creative response to evil. He took the greatest slap on the face from mankind and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He hung naked, like in a courtroom. You know, in all the movies, he's got a little loincloth on. Historically, he was naked and shamed publicly. He hung there naked while his garments, both inner and outer, were gambled away at his feet. He went the extra mile, you could say, carrying the cross to the place of his own death like a lamb led to slaughter. And he gave to those who would take from him even to the point of dying and having nothing left to give. On the cross, he neither ran and cowered nor fought back but absorb the violence of our world through this act of great sacrificial love, he undid the curse of death forever. 
We are his followers. How can we reconcile to the master that we're following without taking on the same traits? On the cross, do we see an angry God taking out a death count of people, storming the capital, spewing out words of hatred towards his enemy, calling people names? No, we don't see that. Here's what the apostle Peter learned from the cross. Let me read this to you and just absorb it and let it be powerful. Peter said this after he witnessed this. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. What government is he in right now? The brutal Roman government. This is what Peter's saying. Whether to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, to the, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In other words, the servants that beat you. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it. But if when you do good and suffer... For, for if you endure, there is a, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, for to this you have been called. Here, this is him saying, this is who you're following. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Bible is absolutely expecting us to follow in the example and the way of life of Jesus. It's right there. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, this is the cross, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's saying, look, this is how Jesus defeated evil. And this is for us not only to receive, but also to do, to practice, to poieo, to practice and practice often. Yeah, Kristen. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 25. It's a great one. Now, look, you guys, I know this leaves a ton of questions. I know it. Like, what about violence done to others? Do I step in? Right? What do I do there? What about, what about the government? Can the government, def government defend itself against foreign powers? That's a question. What about when you can't trust the government <laughs> or the government forces you to do something against God? What about that? Can a, Christian, what about, can a Christian serve in the military? Can a Christian be a police officer? What about law enforcement? What about when a husband is beating his wife? What, what, does she, what can she do? All of those things. Let me just conclude with a few remarks that might settle some of them. And I would just encourage you, flesh these out over lunch in your home groups. Keep talking this through, because we're clearly way out of time here. The passage is not, a, I just want to make this clear, the past, this passage is not addressed to governments. It's addressed to followers of Jesus who are trying to follow in his way on a day-to-day -day way. He's talking about the people walking in the midst of the kingdom of God while being in the kingdom of man. That's what he's talking about here. The language is clear that this is to individuals who are following Jesus. But listen to Paul's exposition. And I'll just end with this. He says, this is in Romans chapter 12, and this is clearly him getting this from the tradition of Jesus and from what Jesus had said. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Michael, I think that's what you were quoting. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. There's that word. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is, it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying, huh? 
If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of you are like, yeah, there it is. No, that's not what he means. Sorry to, sorry to disappoint. It's not a John Wick moment for Jesus. Uh, do not be overcome by evil. This is my favorite line. But overcome evil with good. Now, that's the end of Romans 12. In the original, there are no chapter breaks. If you were to keep reading, look how he checks himself and balances this out. Keep going. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And, that, uh, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You guys, this is a biblical concept through the Old Testament. He uses Nebuchadnezzar. He uses Cyrus. He uses Assyria. He uses all of these evil kind of as a judo move momentum against evil itself. For the rulers are not a terror to, uh, a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in, sub in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Here's the point, and we're done. Here's the point. Um, how do you change a system through your own heart and through your own relationships first? Imagine a world, in, if, if we had a world of citizens, individual citizens and relationships that as Jesus is describing here, we would, in America, we would vote in certain ways. We would have not the same kinds of issues. We would elect different kinds of leaders. The answer is not to start with the leader we're electing and then trickle down from there. The answer is with us to change from the inside out to be followers of Jesus right here, right now, to show the world a new way to be human, imperfect yet genuine followers of Jesus and giving, overcoming evil with good. You guys, I'll just be blunt with you. I think the tragedy of the Western church is that we have swapped out saints for celebrities. What the world needs is a character of people, of followers, who are following Jesus, not just from a stage or with lights or with good words. Those things are great, but with character every day as we go to our jobs, as we go to our schools, as we ride the buses, as we ride the trains, as we interact with people, that's what this world needs to see. And that's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. Follow me, and I will make you into fishers of men.